Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sinescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo Library, three games at a time. We play them briefly, we judge them harshly, and we rank them, and that is pretty much all you need to know. I'm Steampunk Link. This is normally the time where, uh, where ME Zero comes in and says, Hi, I'm ME Zero, and usually says something, you know, clever or pithy, but, uh, she's not here right now, and the, the reason for that is that, uh, we recorded this originally, and something bad happened with the audio. We didn't realize it until uh, very recently. So it's a, just kind of a, a last-ditch effort to get something up, because it, it has been a while. Um, we talked about it, and we just decided that I would just record this quick little solo episode. I mean, it's not going to be quick. It's going to be a full episode, but I would just record this solo, and we will just go on back to normal next time. So that's what we're going to do. So it's just going to be me today uh, talking about these three games. You know, I'm, uh, I'm going to try to make it, you know, lively and interesting, even though it's just me here. Uh, you know, I'm going to try not to be too self-conscious about it or anything. Yeah, so three games, as usual. What are those three games, you might be asking? Well, you should have listened to the last episode and committed to memory the thing that I said, uh, like, three weeks ago, because I, I think it's it's been about three weeks now. Sorry about that. We're going to be talking about Dino City. We're going to be talking about George Foreman's KO Boxing, and we're going to be talking about Super Mario Kart. This first game that we're going to be talking about is uh, very interesting for a number of reasons, so... I guess without further ado, let's just get into it. So this first game is called Dino City, and it is based on a made-for-TV movie called Adventures in Dinosaur City. Already, right out of the gate, why did they change the title? I don't know. Um, have you ever heard of the movie Adventures in Dinosaur City? Probably not. Nobody else seems to have. I mean, very few people seem to have. There's very little written about it on the internet. In fact, I think that the video game has more things written about it on the internet than the movie does. It wasn't a, a fantastic movie. I, I did actually watch it. I mean, I sort of watched it. I watched it while I had other things going on. I'm just... I'm Okay, look, I'm not going to watch a bad 88-minute movie with my undivided attention just for the sake of the show. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to do that, all right? Maybe we'll make that a bonus episode where Emmy and I both watch this movie and, you know, actually pay attention to it and talk about it. I don't know. Maybe that'll be a bonus episode or something. We'll, we'll see. No, no promises. So what is this movie? This movie is about three kids, uh, Timmy, Jamie, and Mick, who are obsessed with a TV show about dinosaurs. It's actually a cartoon. They're They're really obsessed with it. They write and read each other fanfics about it and never miss an episode, apparently. And so one day these three kids go into the laboratory of Timmy's father, who's some kind of weird scientist who uh, apparently is on the brink of like changing the course of humanity because he can actually zap people into worlds based on TV shows. The kids get sucked into the TV they go to Dinosaur Land, which is supposed to be based on the cartoon that they watch, even though, like, the world in which they are living in bears little to no resemblance to the Flintstones-esque cartoon that they are inexplicably obsessed with, uh, to the point that, like, I don't even know how they made the connection that that's where they were. It's so different. Like, the only thing that's similar is the fact that there are talking dinosaurs. 
Oh, yeah. So there are talking dinosaurs. So th- this was around the time when, you know, Ninja Turtles was really big. This this came out in 1991. Uh, the first Turtles movie came out in 89, I believe. The concept of a movie in which there are people wearing animatronic costumes uh, to play these anthropomorphic versions of animals and creatures, you know, it was kind of still big on people's minds and that inevitably must be where the inspiration for this movie came from. Uh, This movie was directed by Brett Thompson, who uh, does not have a Wikipedia page, although according to the IMDb for this person, they are uh, known for films such as the haunted world of Edward D. Wood Jr. Uh, nobody in the movie you really went on to do all that much either. The main kid who plays um, Jimmy, let's see, what is his name? Omri Katz. He would go on to be in things like Hocus Pocus and a couple of... Looks like he was in a couple of soap operas like General Hospital. Oh, he was also in Erie, Indiana. How about that? Anyone remember that show? I kind of remember it. The girl who plays Jamie looked a lot like Emily Bett Rickards, who plays Felicity Smoke on Arrow. I actually had to look up to see if that was the same actress. Uh, It is not. The actress who actually plays Felicity on Arrow was born the year this movie came out. So, uh, uh, I feel old. In any case, uh, the kids team up with Rex and Tops and fight scenes happen. You know, I mean, I will say this, you know, like the sets look all right. And for a bunch of guys dressed up in what must have been heavy animatronic suits, uh, the fight scenes are fine. They're fine. You know, they're all right. But uh, nothing was terribly impressive about this movie. So it's incredibly weird that this even got a game based on it. And it's also really weird that it fell into the lap of... IREM. Uh, I think we talked about them a bit when we talked about Super R-Type. Uh, R-Type is probably their most well-known property, but here's kind of the, the story of IREM. So they started out as International Playing Machine, or IPM, in Hakusan, Japan in 1974. Uh, they were mostly uh, manufacturing, selling, renting arcade equipment, which, uh, you know, would have been really something at the time because arcades were just starting out. Like the first commercially available arcade game came out in 1971, so we were only three years removed from that. The first game that they actually made in-house was 1978's IPM Invaders, and I will give you three guesses as to what that game was a ripoff of. IREM changed their name from IPM to IREM, uh, International Rental Electronics Machines, in 1979. And around the same time, they partnered with Nanao Corporation to produce uh, CRT monitors for their arcade cabinets. And that's an important thing to remember because uh, Nanao would become the, ma- the majority shareholder of IREM in 1980. And uh, Nanao, who is now known as um, ISO, is actually the parent company of what is left of IREM today. But, you know, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. The 1980s were a pretty good time for IREM. They uh, actually developed a lot of games in-house that became pretty popular. Uh, the aforementioned R-Type was a really popular arcade game. Uh, Kung Fu Master was kind of considered one of the first beat-em-ups that uh, came out, and it also did pretty well in arcades. The company released some games for home consoles as well around this time, and uh, at some point in the 80s, IREM changed their name from 
international rental electronics machines to innovations in recreational electronic media. A clever move that left their acronym intact. So unfortunately for IREM, things weren't quite as good for the company in the 90s as they were the 80s. Uh, IREM quit making games in 1994, causing a mass exodus of developers who would go on to create Nazca Corporation, which would develop, among other things, Metal Slug for SNK. In 1997, the story of IREM actually kind of forks into two branches. We get the IREM Corporation, who you know we've been following up to this point, and a new company, IREM Software Engineering, which was created by um, Nanao, their parent company again, to absorb what remained of IREM's development department. So uh, IREM Corp, which was now just reduced to its arcade hardware, uh, was sold to a company called Ubis, was renamed to Apes Corporation to prevent it from being confused with IRM Software Engineering, which was still part of Nanao. And uh, then they were sold again to uh, Atlas in 1999 and finally became independent again in 2001. I do not know what the company is up to these days. I haven't been able to find out much about the company. Only thing I could find was a Wikipedia article saying that the they were still in the business of amusement machines, like fortune-telling machines, and vending machines in Japan as of, I think, uh, 2016. So it seems that they are completely out of the video game business and just kind of doing vending and amusement machines um, if they are, in fact, still around, which, you know, again, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, things didn't go a whole lot better for IREM Software Engineering, which is, is still part of the ISO Corporation, which is uh, formerly Nanao. Uh, they would develop and publish a few games here and there, as well as contribute a lot of assets to Sony's ill-fated PlayStation Home platform. Unfortunately, the company may have been something of a victim of the 2011 Tohoku earthquake. Uh, in the aftermath of the disaster, IREM canceled its remaining high-profile titles and delisted a lot of their games from online marketplaces. And today, IREM seems to exist mostly as a pachinko company. The fate of quite a few video game developers from back in the day, uh, you know, like Konami, who just seems interested in mostly doing pachinko these days. Again, we've got two really strange stories. The story of this not very good, not very well-remembered movie, and IREM, this kind of ill-fated video game company. And at some point, these stories cross and, and become part of each other. And because there is so little information about that movie out there, I really don't know how this happened. I don't know how IREM became the company that would adapt this to the Super Nintendo, but one way or another, they were, and this was the result. So the uh, game's protagonists are uh, Timmy and Jamie. Apparently, Mick just got left out of the game completely. They start the game by having a nice uh, expository conversation in the lab of Timmy's father. Uh, they touch his, what the game calls his as a science device, and they get sucked into the TV, just like they do in the movie. Uh, which causes them to land in Dinosaur Land. Uh, interestingly enough, they don't really talk a lot about the dinosaur cartoon that they're obsessed with, so it's not entirely clear why getting sucked into the TV takes them to a dinosaur place uh, in the video game. But So from here, you can actually control either uh, Timmy and Rex or Jamie and Tops. Uh, so basically, you'll be controlling the dinosaur throughout most of the adventure. The kid is just going to be sitting on their shoulders, not doing a whole lot. Rex can punch and kick. His attacks are a little bit stronger, but they are limited to 
enemies that are right in front of him. He doesn't have any projectiles, whereas Tops, Tops' attack is a projectile. I can see a few places where it might be nice to have, you know, the the stronger combo attacks, but typically you always want to play as Jamie and Tops. You're almost always better off having the projectile than just melee attacks. Um, but regardless of who you play, the levels are all the same. Uh, your dino and, and the kid riding on the dino team up to take out all the n- evil Neanderthals who, uh, again, not only are threatening Dino City, but also uh, conveniently have the device that the kids need to get home. The game is a pretty standard side-scrolling platform action game. You know, not a whole lot to it. You're collecting dinosaur eggs, and for every certain amount of eggs, I think you get an extra life. Uh, your dinosaur has a three-heart health meter that gets reduced by one anytime they get hit. You can collect hearts to get your health back, but if you lose all three, then you lose a life. By pressing the R button, you can uh, control the kid independently of the dinosaur, where the dinosaur will just kind of crouch in place and let the kid take over. Now, the kid only has the ability to freeze enemies with their remote control, which is actually brought up in the movie. They have like a TV remote that can pause and rewind and fast forward time. This doesn't really come into play all that often. It, this almost seems like a mechanic that the developers had bigger plans for. Really, you don't ever need this ability other than to just kind of like jump off of the dinosaur's back and maybe reach some areas that you couldn't get to otherwise. Whenever you are playing as the kid and, and jumped off the dinosaur's back, the screen locks into place, so you, the screen will not scroll in any direction. And again, this kind of feels like a mechanic that is in place because they had maybe grander ideas for what you might do as the kid without the dinosaur, but couldn't implement them in time and just needed a way to prevent people from breaking the game by getting too far away from the dino. If you press R again while you're playing as the kid off the dinosaur's back, they will actually automatically run back to the dinosaur. But if you're in a position where you can't actually get there, the kid will just keep walking, you know, like maybe just running against a wall, not doing anything. And you know, luckily you can hit R again to regain control, but it's a very strange thing. And I almost wonder, like, they went so far as to lock the screen in place so that you can't make any progress without the dinosaur. Why didn't they just make it so that you just teleport back to the dinosaur when you hit the R button? I I don't know. That seems weird. But again, other than just, you know, maybe grabbing an out-of-reach one-up or something like that, there's not much that the kids ever have to do on their own, and most of the game is going to take place just with the kid riding the dinosaur's back and you in control of the dinosaur. The art style of this game is fine, it's serviceable, it's got a slight anime tinge to it, which um, it definitely looks nothing like the source material, which is fine because the source material, again, isn't all that impressive. So, I mean, it makes sense why Rex and Tops don't look anything like their TV movie counterparts, you know, but it, it gets the point across. It's fine. They obviously look like dinosaurs. The kids look like kids. The game also features a few really cool day to night cycles in some places. It's all very set, but when you go past a certain point in a certain level, the entire background will change from like daytime to evening and evening to dark. And it's actually a pretty cool effect that I was pretty impressed by. The goofiness of some of the enemies really got a chuckle out of me. They're like, there's a big guy who at one point starts pushing a wall of rock toward me that I have to get ahead of before he crushes me between the wall and his big stone slab. I don't know why. I just found it very funny. 
the music is also just kind of fine. It, it's it's not terribly memorable or, or catchy or anything. But there's some areas where you're going to be writing things. Like there's um, a few levels that take place on a roller coaster, which is kind of neat. The frame rate starts to get kind of chopped and the game suffers a little bit of slowdown at times. It can't quite handle what it's trying to go for there. But, you know, I, I appreciate the the sense of speed and everything. It, it's kind of neat. There's also some other stages that take place on these giant Ferris wheels. Those I didn't like as much. The Ferris wheel effect is obviously being done by Mode 7, uh, rotating a big Ferris wheel sprite behind you. But again, the slowdown really gets in the way in these sections. There's these little fly enemies that start coming at you from all directions that are very hard to avoid or defeat. These are not fun areas. I, I really found myself just dreading going into any area that had one of these Ferris wheels that I just have to kind of like ride to the end of the stage. There are some neat things about this game. I really liked the bosses that I encountered in this game. Uh, the first boss is a Neanderthal. Oh, by the way, the Neanderthals are called Rockies. That might be important. The first boss is a Rocky who drops these stone slabs between you and him and uses these machines to break them, which sends debris flying at you, which you have to avoid and, or, you know, you take damage. But you can also destroy the stones and send debris flying at him, and that's actually how you fight him. I thought this was kind of cool. I thought that was sort of a neat way of doing a boss fight. There's some other things. There's more straightforward fights, like a fight against these two giant worms that pop out of the ground that you have to time your hits just right. There's another boss fight in which uh, another one of those big guys who pushes the stone slab is just pushing this giant contraption toward you. So you not only have to dodge attacks that the contraption is throwing at you, but you have to hit it in just the right place before it crushes you against a wall. You know, it, it's it's a more clever boss fight than I think I was anticipating from this game. Because again, you know, my, my expectations for this game were not terribly high. Uh, one thing I really didn't like about this game was some of the jumping mechanics. There are times where you'll have to, like, jump off of trampolines or these weird creatures that alternate between being trampolines and things with spikes coming out of their backs, so you have to time your jumps just right. I found it really hard to time my jumps to get uh, the most height out of my jump. Um, they expected you to jump off of these platforms at just the right time, uh, or else you know your, your jump wouldn't be as high as it normally would be coming off of one of these things. And you know sometimes it requires you to get maximum height to progress, and I just found it really, really insanely difficult to um, nail the timing on those. And at some points in the game, like, you had to get the timing right really quickly or else there'd be, you know, like, an enemy coming after you or something like that. Yeah, I, I didn't like that quite so much. You know, this, this isn't a terribly remarkable game, but, you know, given what it's based on, it is actually maybe a little bit better than it has any right being, kind of. You know, we're also not quite at the point in the Super Nintendo's library where the system is just being absolutely inundated with just a barrage of licensed crap, um, particularly side-scrolling platformer licensed crap, which this game is. So because we're not quite there yet, this game actually doesn't have a ton of competition. So when Emmy and I were talking about it, we actually kind of found ourselves ranking this one a little bit higher than we thought we might have. You know, and again, like, this game isn't terrible, but it's it's just nothing to write home about. So as of right now, we've got 77 games on the list. We've got Super Mario World at number one. we got Pit Fighter at the very bottom. 
So I think that we felt that this game was a little bit more polished than something like Rival Turf, which is currently at number 27. Um, Rival Turf was a game that was very janky. Um, this game, you know, has some of that jankiness with, you know, like the, the lack of screen scrolling um, when you're off the dinosaur, which, you know, felt like an intentional decision, but a very strange one. I almost don't even know why that mechanic is in the game. Also worth mentioning, I don't think I mentioned this before, the screen only scrolls in one or two directions. Uh, basically, that means you can't go back in a level, kind of like the original Mario Brothers, which is a weird design choice or maybe just something that they had to do due to some kind of limitations. I don't know. There's also just, you know, the the thing with the jumping, which, again, I think was on purpose, but makes the game feel janky in a way. But definitely not to the point that Rival Turf was. So we wanted to put this game above Rival Turf, but we didn't think it was nearly as polished as something like Magic Sword. So this game ends up being our new number 27 between uh, Magic Sword and Rival Turf. So that is Dino City. It just... A really weird thing, and I, I know I've, I've talked about this one for a while now, but yeah, it's just, it's so strange that I can't help be a little bit fascinated by it, and, and just the, the entire, like, I, I'm, I'm curious more than anything. I want to know, like, how this happened. How did this game end up getting made? How did a, a movie that nobody cared about, and it was, was made on such a short budget that probably very few people watch, I don't even know what channel it came out on, how did it get a video game? <laughs> It's mind-boggling to me. I really would like to know that story, how this happened. But in any case, we're going we're gonna to move past Dino City. Um, if you want to know more about the adventures of Dinosaur City, you can watch the entire movie on YouTube. Nobody is copyright striking it. Nobody wants to take credit for it. This also means, because I, I didn't even know this movie existed until somewhat recently, this is the second made-for-TV movie to feature an anthropomorphic dinosaur <laughs> played by an actor in an animatronic costume. Um, the other one being, of course, the much better remembered uh, Theodore Rex starring Whoopi Goldberg, uh, a movie that actually had a budget and aspirations of being shown in theaters, uh, but didn't quite make it there. It had to settle for TV instead. That movie came out in 96. So Adventures of Dinosaur City or Adventures in Dinosaur City actually predates that movie by five years. That's <sighs> this whole thing is nuts to me, you guys. This is just, oh, it's bonkers. You know what? Maybe maybe 90s Court should get on this. 90s Court podcast. Do an episode comparing and contrasting Theodore Rex and The Adventures in Dinosaur City, which is the better made-for-TV movie about dinosaurs. Let's, let's find out. Let's get to the bottom of this. Also, all of you guys listening, check out 90s Court. Check out that podcast. It's pretty good. Also, 90s Court, don't actually do what I just said. Uh, don't, don't subject yourself to these movies. You, you, you don't deserve that. I'm sorry. All right. Enough about Dino City. I've got to leave Dino City behind. It's time to move on to uh, something far less fascinating to me. Uh, let's, uh, let's get in the ring. Next up, we've got George Foreman's KO Boxing. This is the, the first boxing game on the Super Nintendo. Uh, beat Punch-Out by uh, quite some time. And unfortunately, um, if you want a fun boxing game on the Super Nintendo, you're, you're just going to have to wait for Super Punch-Out, because this one, this ain't it. This one was published by our friends at Acclaim. Remember them? Acclaim? Yeah, we've talked quite a bit about Acclaim. Uh, it was developed by Beam Software, uh, an Australian studio who I 
pretty sure we talked about in the Smash TV episode. Long story short, they were acquired by Infogrames and later were sold to Chrome Studios. Uh, KO Boxing, it, it plays a little bit like Punch-Out. Uh, this game makes the decision to have you actually step into the shoes of George Foreman, you know, whereas Punch-Out saved its big celebrity boxer endorsement as being like the, the final challenge to overcome. You're just playing as George Foreman and all of your opponents are just you know, characters that they made up, which is also kind of disappointing to me. Like I was thinking maybe they were going for a more realistic boxing sim and that maybe like you'd actually be boxing against other real world boxers, but uh, no such luck. Some of these boxers are kind of normal enough that somebody ignorant of boxing like I am might have mistaken as a real fighter like Tommy Collins and others are just absolutely ridiculous, like the one-eyed Eddie the Pirate Preston. Some of these characters start to maybe approach Punch-Out's level of zaniness, but yeah, no one just seems to exude any of the personality of any of those other fighters from Punch-Out. So it's this is a really, really bland game. The controls aren't very difficult to get a handle on. Um, a and B control your right and left hands, respectively. Uh, left and right on the D-pad lets you dodge to avoid certain punches. Uh, down lets you block to take less damage. Uh, also, like Punch-Out, you can earn super punches for certain actions, uh, which I found myself earning occasionally. According to a fact I read, these super punches are earned after successful combos. I, I'm not sure what really activated them to be honest they just seemed to i just seemed to get them randomly uh, unfortunately i never found the super punches all that useful for one thing they're mapped to the select button which is really if you're mapping an actual in-game action to select uh, you did something wrong i'm just gonna say and also like i found that my opponents were almost always able to easily dodge my super punches like it seems like the super punch was mostly meant for when you manage to get your opponent into some kind of state in which they couldn't move. They only seem to be useful in very specific circumstances, and I typically just kind of had to flail around until one of us got knocked out. This is also the second game that I managed to beat in the course of, you know, just playing games for this podcast, which is not as impressive a feat as you might think. I quickly found out that there are some weird features in this game that are not so well hidden where if you pause the game and press a certain button on the controller and then unpause the game certain things will happen like i think it was um if you press the x button while the game is paused i i, I can't remember exactly which button it was uh when you unpause the game your opponent's health meter will just drain and you just win there's actually just a win button in the game Pause the game, hit the win button, unpause, and you win. Just do that until you've knocked down your opponent three times in one match for the KO, and uh, you move on and just keep doing that until credits roll, I guess. Yeah, you can just do that, or you could just, you know, not play this game because it's not very fun. And it's also very drab. Like, there's not a lot of production going on here. The boxing ring that you're fighting in is pretty dark. There's minimal stuff going on in the background. The interstitials between matches, which happen occasionally, are just still images of George Foreman saying something, usually, weirdly enough, related to eating, like talking about how that boxer was just a light snack. Is George Foreman always hungry? Is that a thing? Like, is he just perpetually hungry? 
Is that why he did this game? Like, because, you know, he was like, oh, yeah, th- I, I can pay for food with the money that I'll make from the license on this. Like, what is going on with George Foreman? And then, of course, you know, he's, he's most well known now for making a grill. Like, I think George Foreman is just always hungry. Like, he can't be satisfied. That sounds sad in a way. I'm, I'm, I hope that's not the case. I hope George Foreman, wherever you are, I hope you're okay. And I hope you're full. That's all I've got to say about this game. There's really not much to it. Um, And, yeah, unsurprisingly, uh, neither of us really cared for this one. And I have far less to say about this than I did the last game because, again, it's... I don't don't find anything interesting about this at all. So, uh, let's see. Where did this one end up? So, we were looking over all of the sports sim games that we've got on this list, and we kind of agreed that, like... Even as bad as a lot of the baseball has been on the Super Nintendo, this game is just so much worse. There's so much less to this game. And really, the closest comparison we could think of was Space Football 1-on-1, which was kind of visually impressive, but also limited and also just a complete mess. George Foreman KO Boxing is at least more competently made, I feel like. Like, there's a a better idea of what this game should be, which is almost not fair because, I mean, it is just a boxing game where space football was kind of trying to make up its own thing whole cloth and just completely failed at it. We still decided that George Foreman KO Boxing was better than that. We didn't think it was better than Zardion, which is uh, above it right now. So, yeah, so we got Zardion at 68 and space football one-on-one at 69. So we decided to make George Foreman KO Boxing our new number 69. Nice. So that's uh, that's George Foreman, and that's pretty much all I've got to say about that one. Um, not a whole lot to it. A game that I have considerably more to talk about is uh, this final game for today, and that is Super Mario Kart. So this is the genesis for... An incredibly popular, incredibly long-lasting Nintendo franchise, still going today. I think just about every Nintendo system since the Super Nintendo has had a Mario Kart on it. This game is still a lot of fun, but every single game in the Mario Kart series has built upon what's come before it. And as a result, this one being the first, it's, it's a lot harder to go back to, and it's not nearly as fun as pretty much every other game in the series. So... It's it's harder to recommend this one as anything other than kind of a retrospective. Now, having said that, we still ranked this one very high. But it's, it's a lot more difficult to enjoy today than even its immediate predecessor, Mario Kart 64. Sure, Super Mario Kart already has some of the aspects of the game that defines the series, like versus races and battle modes, but... The N64 has those too, and you can play those four-player, where the Super Nintendo, you can only play two. Super Mario Kart features 20 unique tracks, but there are fewer than 10 themes, meaning that a lot of tracks share the same aesthetic. Only the final track, Rainbow Road, has a completely unique theme all to itself, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in just a second. Also, if you want to play Super Mario Kart single-player, you're still limited to only seeing half the screen due to hardware limitations, a limitation that the N64 version doesn't have. Um, you can play that one full screen if you're uh, just playing alone. 
And uh, there's other limitations here, too. For one thing, uh, so this game accomplishes its racing the same way a lot of racing games did, like F-Zero with the, the Mode 7. It would take a large bitmap graphic of a racetrack and just kind of scale it and, you know, move it around and things to give you the illusion that you're racing on this big track. So with Mario Kart, like with F-Zero, it means that everything looks very, very flat, though. Uh, Like, for example, um, item boxes aren't cubes floating above the track like they would be in every other version of the game, but instead are panels on the ground denoted with the familiar yellow question mark block from past Mario games. Uh, walls are just multicolored blocks on the ground that can't be driven over, which makes the visual language of this game really hard to parse at first. You might find yourself wondering, why can I drive over this object that looks like a flat thing on the ground, but not this one? There are some sprite-based obstacles like pipes and thornless thwomps, which actually look as if they should be impeding your progress when you run up against them. They're the only things that actually seem to have, like, height to them in a way that, you know, like the walls don't, that's, that's really strange at first. Uh, This game also features five lap races, which is two laps longer than pretty much any other Mario Kart game uh, that I am aware of. Uh, I think like there's a few exceptions with like really small tracks where like that's kind of the gimmick in future Mario games where the track is very, very small so that you have to race more laps uh, around it. But as a result of the kind of generally small courses in this game, you have to race five laps. And that kind of makes the racetracks feel like small but at the same time like the races just feel like they go on a little bit longer than they should so it probably sounds like i'm being pretty hard on this game and i I kind of am but i you know I, i wanted to get the negative stuff out of the way because you know again like we were a little bit disappointed when we went back to this game for the purpose of talking about it on the podcast. You know, we were we were both a little bit down on it more than we thought we were going to be. But rest assured, our feelings about the game were more mild disappointment than actual, like, disgust. We still think there's a lot to like about this game as well. The thing that I said earlier about every single Mario Kart game iterating on the one that came before it um, really, like, those games are so good because this one did start out as strong as it did. You know, there was already the item system in place. Mario Kart really became a popular franchise because of the item system in this game, where you're not just racing around a track, but you're also using weapons and items to gain speed and other things. So it becomes more about strategy than just pure racing. When you get a red shell, which is acts like a homing missile, do you use that against the racer that's immediately in front of you, or do you think you can maybe overcome that guy and use it on the person in front of them. When you get a speed-boosting mushroom or a high-jump-enabling feather, can you find ways to use that to make a shortcut for yourself? Some tracks are built around the idea that, like, hey, use this for a shortcut. Like, the first Ghost track has, like, a, a little stretch of, uh, of racetrack that you're meant to basically jump to if you have the feather uh, equipped. Other times you can kind of find places where you can jump over areas that maybe the developers didn't intend, but because the feather is such a powerful item in this game, you can just kind of do that. This game also features a coin system that actually didn't return for a very long time in the series. Uh, Collecting coins on the track will make your cart go a little bit faster but bumping into another cart or sliding off the track will cost you coins. It's a neat mechanic that adds a little extra depth to the proceedings that uh, actually 
aren't in a lot of other Mario Kart games. So this is actually one of the few things that got lost at some point. In, uh, well, actually, it got lost almost immediately and hasn't made a resurgence until, I think, like maybe the last one or two Mario Kart games uh, finally brought that whole mechanic back. And uh, even though Battle Mode was limited to two players on the Super Nintendo, it was still ridiculously fun. And honestly, like I think it is the thing that my friends and I played more than any other mode back when we played this game. So in case you aren't familiar with Battle Mode, uh, it's a long-standing tradition in Mario Kart consisting of special tracks uh, that are designed around the idea of battling each other rather than racing. So instead of just trying to be faster than your opponent, you're actively seeking out items to use to knock them silly. You have three balloons circling your cart, and anytime you get hit with an item, you will lose one of those balloons, and if you lose all three, then you're out and your opponent wins. It's a really simple mode, but it is just so much fun. And again, it's it's a mode that has been iterated on so much that it is just it just gets more and more fun as the games go on. But it still started here and it started really strong. This game is also packed with a lot of special features, like the ability to save a ghost to race against in time trials mode. You can also unlock the special cup without having to win the gold and all the other cups to use in time trials and two-player races with a code so simple I still remember it years later. Swear to God, I did not have to look this up beforehand. The code is L-R-L-R-L-L-R-R-A. Enter that from the menu, either time trial menu or the two-player race menu, and it'll give you access to the special cup if you want to race there. Mario's World has always been a really lively and colorful one, so, you know, the decision to, like, make a Mario racing game instead of trying to make, like, a sequel to F-Zero or something like that was a was a really clever move and you know whether it was because there were hardware limitations that you know prevented them from being able to make like a proper two player f0 game which i've i've read somewhere uh, may have been the case i think that like mario is such a great fit for this sort of game the stages or the, the race tracks in this game are all themed around areas from super mario world which you know just came out the last year so you know again it's it's not surprising that that's where they took a lot of inspiration from but the racetracks you know is as flat as they are still look really cool for what they are they're they're very colorful very lively the mario circuit races are your more straightforward racetrack looking tracks the donut plains are a more natural looking tracks with grass and sand and water and giant gophers that pop up and block your path. Uh, the ghost houses are just really cool. They have this, this spooky ghost house music going in the background and they're typically the tracks that feature hidden shortcuts if you know where to look and have the right items in order to use them. Uh, Bowser's Castle or have moats filled with lava that you can fall in and luckily you know you just get picked up by Lakitu and you're no worse for wear after that all of the tracks just um really have a lot of personality all the themes are really really cool I really enjoy the game a lot and, and I love the look of it and also all the themes have their own musical tracks which are very good as well they're kind of inspired by the Mario World music, but they're not just rehashes on the Mario World theme. They're, for the most part, they're all new music tracks, and they all sound great. 
And then finally, we come to Rainbow Road, which seems to exist in this strange black void, perhaps outer space, where the characters race on a psychedelic multicolored track. And it's just, I really loved that track back in the day. It's just an idea so amazing that every single Mario Kart since has ended with its own version of Rainbow Road. And I I just really love that. It's just such a cool way to cap off these games with just something so otherworldly and colorful that, um, you know, like you, you couldn't possibly top it. Where, where would you possibly go after a rainbow road? You know, again, I, I think that there's still a lot to really like about this game. And I know that I, I've, I've poo-pooed on it a lot. Um, you know, we did find it a little bit disappointing to go back to because it's just not nearly as fun as any other game in the series. And it's honestly not our favorite racing game on the super Nintendo up to this point. Um, you know, like we we still think Top Gear is a better racing game than Super Mario Kart. But you know, having said that, there's still just so much. It's charming about Super Mario Kart. The cast of Mario characters just works so well in this context. And the little scenes, you know, with the characters on the podium after completing a circuit are a lot of fun. And um, so much fun that Nintendo had to actually censor some of them in, in the United States release. Uh, like, apparently, in the original Japanese version, it's implied that Peach gets a little bit tipsy on her champagne if she's in first place on the podium. So uh, that's kind of fun. But, uh, yeah, they toned that down here because, uh, you know, can't have alcohol in your games on, on Super Nintendo. So, but... It, yeah, the game is really cool. It's not as good as Top Gear, but it is better than Contra 3, which is right below it at number 10. So Super Mario Kart does just barely crack the top 10 and is our new number 10. And folks, with that, I think that this concludes our uh, solo episode here. Boy, I I hope I don't have to do too many of these. <laughs> I hope this wasn't uh, a, a chore to listen to. Anyway, I expect Emmy Zero will be back next time, as long as you know all the uh, all our audio issues get sorted out. Look forward to that. And I guess on that note, I should tell you what games we're going to be talking about. We're going to be looking at Roger Clemens MVP Baseball. We're going to be looking at RoboCop Three, and we're going to be looking at Wheel of Fortune. That'll be fun. So yeah, tune in for that. I really appreciate you all listening and, and putting up with this weird solo episode that I've, I've had to do out of desperation, basically. But uh, we'll be, uh, we will both, Emmy Zero and I, will be back next time to talk about those three games. And we hope that you will tune in for that. So until next time, for Emmy Zero, I'm Steampunk Link. Play it loud. Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoaxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoaxe.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com. They thought about everything they'd been through. The perilous swamp, the treacherous tower, the darkness of Rainbow Cavern. They stood together exhausted from their adventure. Rick stared into her eyes for a long time. And his great green lips curled sadly back from his fangs. 
and his voice was soft as he said, it's too bad it couldn't have worked out between us, but at least we'll always have Tartan. You've got to be pulling my tail. That's your idea of a dinosaur story? 